0: Man, just worshiping this morning, I feel like that really set the tone for our time. Um, my name is Matt Zielich. I'm the student life pastor here, and uh, I have an opportunity to contribute some thoughts to the series that we've been working through this summer. If you've uh, maybe been gone for the last couple of weeks, I'll, I'll catch you up. We've been doing a series called The Theology Project. And what we're doing in this series is trying to identify and explore certain words or terms or concepts that we find in scripture I'm trying to dig a little bit deeper. And as we do that, um, we will come to a richer, fuller understanding of who God is, strengthen our relationship with him and understand what it is. That he wants from us, and so today we're focusing on the idea of holiness. Even as we worship this morning, it's a word we we sing out to God. It's a word that's that's found um, in in our in our lyrics as we sing these songs, and uh, and that's the question we're asking all morning: What is holiness? Because in my experience, there's it's. It's so much deeper and richer. There are so many layers to explore. And so I'm excited to do that this morning. Uh, A quick definition, for those of you that are taking notes, we'll leave this on for just a little bit so you can write it down. God is holy. The quality of being uniquely set apart from all creation in a state of moral perfection and pure goodness. Holiness is the lifelong goal of believers to become more like Jesus. Now, the first reference of the word holy is found in the book of Genesis, and it's actually referring to um, the seven days of the week. One day, in particular, the Sabbath, God says is to be holy. It's to be set apart, special, unique from the other day's of the week. Now that's an important understanding to get us started. But our temptation might be to use that definition uh, in the preceding verses when we find it, uh, and that, that basically captures our full understanding of what holiness or to be holy is. But that's not what the Bible wants you to do. The Bible, as as it progresses, is one collective story. And in this story, God is actually expanding and developing and growing our understanding of what holiness actually means. And so to explore that this morning, here is my entire outline for you to see. First, we're gonna talk about sandals, and then we're gonna talk about tents, and then Leviticus. Um, Then we'll move forward to protocol and fear and dancing. And we'll spend a little bit of time in this huge idea, this, this shift in scripture when we talk about smoke and coals and tree stumps. And then we'll wrap up this morning talking about bricks and milk and mechanics. So uh, you might be a little confused and not see how all of those ideas come together, but I'm telling you, as we dive into scripture this morning, you are going to see that these are the concepts that the Bible outlines to help us frame our perspective of God's holiness and what that means in our life. Are you ready to begin? All right, let's do it. Perfect. Okay, so the first time God is called holy is actually in the book of Exodus. Exodus is a story of a people that were enslaved by the Egyptians. And in their slavery and oppression, they call out to God in desperation, Please save us. Do you see this injustice? Rescue us. We need help. And we learn pretty quickly on that this God of these people sees their pain and he says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to step in and liberate you from slavery. I'm going to rescue you from Egypt. The way that God does this is he actually appears to a man named Moses who formerly was in power in Egypt but has been exiled away. So God in the form of a burning bush speaks out to Moses and he says this very strange phrase. He says, Moses, take off your sandals because the ground on which you are standing is holy. So we learn that because of God's presence, apparently the things around God are now made holy. And so God, um, God leads Moses um, and Moses is obedient and he goes to Pharaoh and eventually he's able to maneuver this group of Hebrew people out of their slavery from Egypt uh, and, and make their way towards the promised land. And as they do that, uh, there's this really, really important scene in in Exodus when God um, appears on Mount Sinai. The people are at the base of the mountain. There's a cloud above head, and, and God says to the people, you have to stay back, but I'm going to speak collectively to the community all at once. And he says this. He says, I will reaffirm with this people the covenant I made with their fathers, with Abraham, the patriarch. He says that I will be your God. You will be my people. You will be a holy nation, a holy people, a a, a kingdom, a nation of priests. Now, the people affirm this covenant. They say, yes, that's what we want. And that's when God gives instruction. He offers the Ten Commandments, the the guidelines for this early community. And, And there's some mistakes made along the way. But ultimately, it's, it's the task of, of Moses to lead these people with the help of God um, to, be, to, to realize this vision, their full potential as a, as a nation of priests, a holy people. And then God says something really important that we have to hold on to as we move forward in our concept of holiness. God tells the people, you need to build a sanctuary. And when you build this sanctuary, my presence will dwell among you. And that's what they set out to do. They begin making and crafting the tabernacle. They're giving all kinds of specific instructions on how to do this. Um, And in the tabernacle, there's actually a tent. And inside the tent is the Ark of the Covenant that holds the Ten Commandments that they received on Mount Sinai. It's the thing that Indiana Jones will later discover thousands of years later. And then, uh, and then something very interesting happens. This is how the book of Exodus concludes. It says this in Exodus chapter 40. The Lord said to Moses, place the Ark of the Covenant inside and install the inner curtain to enclose the Ark within the most holy place. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, but Moses could no longer enter. So we go from God appearing in the form of, of a burning bush, speaking to Moses, take off your sandals, the ground you are standing is holy. But now when God's full presence indwells the tabernacle, Moses cannot enter. Now, the way we can think about God's holiness at this point in scripture is almost like the sun in our solar system. So the sun within our solar system, at least, is unique, is set apart. There's nothing else like it. And it sustains life. It's good, we need it. But if you get too close to the sun, it will be dangerous to you. It will consume you. And, and this idea is presented in Exodus that God's goodness could potentially be dangerous to a sinful people. And that's when we come to the book of Leviticus. In fact, the book of Leviticus begins with this line in in chapter one. The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle. So even though Moses couldn't go in, God is still having relationship with Moses, with his people. He's speaking from the tabernacle instructions to Moses. And all throughout the book of Leviticus, we find a long list of rules and regulations and codes. If you've ever just like Dove into the Bible and you turn to Leviticus, you probably made a huge mistake because you would be like, what is going on here? I don't understand this. These don't make sense to me. And here's the point. Here's the whole thing that Leviticus is trying to accomplish. It's trying to communicate for the people how to become morally and ritually pure. If you can become morally and ritually pure, it allows you to be in a state where you can be in God's presence. And so, uh, so through, the, through the, the book of Leviticus, we get all of these rituals and celebrations and festivals and, and things that, that they're supposed to do. And here's how the next book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, begins. A year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. So something took place. From Levit- the beginning of Leviticus, Moses could not enter, but because of this, this code of conduct, this, these rules that, that the community follows, now Moses is able to enter the tabernacle and have relationship with God there. Now, ultimately, what we're talking about when we talk about Leviticus is protocol. What is the proper protocol that we need to follow as an unholy people that wants to approach a holy God? How can we remain safe. We have all kinds of protocol in our daily life. When you get in your car, you, you wear a seatbelt to keep you safe in case of a dangerous situation. When you cross the road, you, you wait for the blinking light to, to tell you when to move because that could potentially be a dangerous situation situation. I know in the summertime, a lot of people, maybe many of you go to California and you like to swim in the waves. If you've ever been like in a, on a beach where there's huge waves, you know, you don't turn your back on the wave because that's dangerous. It's part of the protocol. Uh, A year and a half ago, maybe like nearly two years ago, uh, my wife and I took a trip to Alaska. It was kind of like our, before we had our, our baby, like our, I guess our last, uh, last real vacation we could ever have again. Uh, so we went, we went to Alaska, and it was beautiful. Oh my goodness, uh, it, it, was, it was amazing. And one of the things you can do is uh, go on excursions. And so um, we, we were on this cruise, we, we docked, and then we went on an excursion that took us to this remote place in Alaska. It was, it was absolutely gorgeous. And so we get there, and we spend half the day. And they have hiking trails you can explore, and so I, I go off on my own to do that. And as I'm walking... I actually stop because about 50 yards ahead of me, I see a black bear, like a full grown black bear. And um, I've seen black bears like in the zoo, on TV, very different experience when they're behind something—a screen or a glass. Uh, I did not feel the same way in this moment, and and my heart is racing. I'm I'm kind of freaking out, and I want to run. Uh, that's what like my God-given instincts tell me. Like you should just run right now. But then I realize like I'm I'm on a remote island. There's nowhere to go. This bear will catch me. And then instead of just dying, I will die very tired. And so it's that's not worth the risk. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what to do and, and I see that there's, I'm not alone. Thank, thank God I was not alone. There was another guy there w- that was with me. We kind of like look at each other and, and I have this other second thought. I think, okay, maybe I shouldn't outrun the bear. I should just outrun this guy <laughs> and the bear will go for him. But because I'm a good Christian, this is my, here's my next thought. I will run so fast to get help. They will come back and rescue him before the bear kills him. <laughs> So that's, it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out. And, and, I, and, and I, just, I just ended up, just, we just looked at each other, we're just frozen, just wondering, what do we do? What's the protocol in this situation? Now, I think at some level we've all heard the ideas, the theories, you should stand still and don't move. Or you should get down and play dead. Or maybe you get real big and make a lot of noise to intimidate the bear. Those are all conflicting protocols. Those are like the opposite things. And I did not know which one was the right one. Now, luckily, there was like a guide there that kind of shooed the bear off. Apparently, it was a friendly bear. Um, And so it it worked out. I'm not gonna take that risk in the future, but uh, he just kind of shooed him off to the side. Um, And I realized this, that I am aware at some level that there's probably a protocol you're supposed to follow. But my ignorance to what that protocol was could potentially be dangerous to me. And that's what we find in this weird story with God's holiness in the book of 2 Samuel. So fast forward to this community. They now are in the promised land. They have a king, King David, who slayed Goliath. They're moving the Ark of the Covenant, this holy space, um, and and all of a sudden this man named, named Uzzah reaches out and touches the Ark and then he dies. And so if you're reading that, you're like, what is going on? And, uh, and it's because he did not follow the proper protocol of purification outlined in Leviticus. And so here's what happens. Uh, it says this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. David was now afraid of the Lord. So he decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. David is in the presence of, this, of God's holiness. But in this moment, he becomes afraid. He suddenly feels a little bit insecure that in order to protect himself and maybe his way of life, the best thing to do is to send God somewhere else. He wants nothing to do with it. But here's what happens, because I'll summarize this for you. David gets word that where he sent the ark, it rested for about three months and the people that that surrounded it were all blessed. So apparently David sees that, okay, even though it's difficult to be around God's presence because of the protocol we follow, it will result in blessing. God's holiness will result in blessing. I want that. So he goes to retrieve it. He says, I want that back. Bring that holiness back into our lives, back into the city. And this is his response. It says this in 2 Samuel, David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. Now, you can easily miss this if you're just reading through the story. David goes from looking like a king, his power, his control, his image. He goes from looking like a king to looking like a priest. And, And what allows him to do that is, is to let his guard down and, and maybe even expose his insecurities. And he danced. When I, I love like whenever there's like a wedding or a celebration, I love like hanging out with my friends and dancing, spending hours on the dance floor. It's like one of my favorite things. But when I was younger in high school, I had never, my first dance was my junior year of homecoming. And I asked this girl and we were in a group and I was so excited because you see dances like in the movies and everyone's having a great time and really fun. And so I just kind of thought that's what it would be like. we go to this dance and I had I'd never been to a dance before. I'd never danced at all. Like even by myself, I'd never done that. And so I like, I remember that like I was so afraid. I got out there, I was just terrified and and i and i didn't want to just like abandon the group so i stayed with them but they were all on the dance floor so i was out there afraid to dance feeling so insecure, didn't want to be embarrassed. And I'm not exaggerating. For the full two hours of this homecoming dance, I stood on the dance floor with my hands in my pockets and I just smiled. (laughs) That's like so awkward, so unbelievably awkward. I like would love to go back and like bust a move, but I can't, I can't take it back. It was so, so uncomfortable. And it's because of my insecurity. My fear kept me from dancing, from, from celebrating, enjoying the moment. Because when you dance, you have to let your guard down. In order to dance, you have to let your guard down. And I was so afraid that I had built up a wall and I, and I tried to hide behind it. The irony, of course, is that I didn't, I just stood out. But I, I felt like if I could mask my insecurity, if I could mask my fear, maybe I could protect myself. These are the moments when I think I'm living like the king. I want to protect the image. I want to have control. I want to have the power. And the more I live my life like that, the further I can send God's presence away. It's when I break down the wall, when I expose my insecurities, that I'm actually opening myself up to receive the blessing of God's holiness. And that's what the story teaches us. We need to dance. Now, here's what happens. So moving forward, because we're going through like all of scripture today. So that's just where we're at. We're, we're now at a point where the people are trying to be obedient to the laws and the codes and the rules and the protocol. They're, they're trying their best. And in fact, there's an issue that happens. By the time we come to Isaiah, his book begins like this, that the people's sacrifices are meaningless. Apparently what's happening is people are just realizing, oh, I can live my life. I can sin all the time. And as long as I just like kill a goat or something, I'm good to go. So people are just like going through the motions here and it's not actually translating into the, this group of people, this community living into the holy, like the, the potential of their holiness. And so uh, all of a sudden uh, Isaiah has a vision. And in this vision, Isaiah is in the tabernacle, and he and he's, sees all this smoke, which he knows represents and symbolizes God's presence. He knows he's in the midst of God's presence, and he shouldn't be there. He's terrified. And, and he even calls out, he says, I am an unclean man with unclean lips. He knows he's not supposed to be there. He's not followed the protocol. But then this other thing happens that shifts our idea of holiness. It says that this creature named uh, a seraphim comes to him and places a hot coal, a symbol of purity, and touches his lips. And this is what happens in Isaiah chapter six. He touched my lips with a hot coal from the altar and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. For Isaiah the revelation is that it's not he who has to make himself holy before God. It's God who makes Isaiah holy before himself. A radical shift in the understanding we have already received from scripture about holiness. And then in this moment, uh, God says, I have a message and I need a messenger. Isaiah says, send me, I'll tell the people. And he says that this is the message. My people have wandered so far from me they can't even hear my voice anymore. They don't even know that I'm there. I'm trying to speak to them, but they're ignoring me. They're lost. And this is going to continue because they have built their pride up so high that they think they're strong when really they're weak. And so he even uses the image of a tree. They're like, they're like a strong tree. But because of their distance from me, they're vulnerable, and other nations are going to come in and chop them down. They're going to cut them down. And all that will be left is a stump, a sign of, of death, decay. There's no rejuvenation there. And I think about this story and my concept of holiness, and I recognize it's it's. it's an experience I've had myself, I can live my life trying to inflate myself, trying to boost myself. My pride can dictate this image that I wanna portray for other people. And sometimes it gets cut down. When I was uh, in middle school, I knew I wanted to be in ministry for a long time. And so when I was in middle uh, middle school, I knew I wanted to go into ministry. When I was in high school, I started plugging in and volunteering at my church. And uh, I was helping out with the with the junior high ministry, and, and I knew the the youth pastor. And I'll tell you right now, like I thought I was the greatest leader that had ever walked the earth. Like I was God's gift to this youth ministry. All was lost until my arrival, and now all will be found. I am like I have arrived. That's how I. That's and I and I had this pride, like this swagger. That's how I thought about myself. And even to the point where I would like critique the ministry, it, like internally, but then I said, no, 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 people need to know this. They need to, they need to know what I think about things. So then I started critiquing the ministry to other leaders, even to students and bashing everything that was going on. So the youth leader kind of catches me in one of these moments and he pulls me aside and he says, Matt, like you are way out of line, way out of line. You cannot like, you are, you're, a, you're called to be a leader. And and you are you are destroying the ministry that we're trying to build up, and and you're, you're not you're not helping us fulfill our, our mission. And when he told me that, I was furious. I was so angry with him. I, I how dare you? Like I'm a volunteer. I'm helping you out. You should be you should be thanking me and begging me to stay, not critiquing and criticizing me. I just felt so cut down. But I realized as I sat with that, that it wasn't malicious. He was not trying to hurt me. My pride needed to be cut down because it was inhibiting me from actually being effective in what God's called me to do. And that's, what, that's the point Isaiah's making. He says that my people will be cut down, but here's what happens. There's, there's still hope. Israel's stump will be a holy seed. When our pride is cut down, it exposes a seed that if that seed grows, will produce holiness. Even though I felt cut down, it allowed me to water and nurture the seed of humility, of compassion, of patience, of respect. These are things that God wanted to grow in me that was unable to happen because of, of my pride. Now, for the people, uh, that's, that's what happens. Um, as we fast forward through scripture, Isaiah's vision comes, comes to fruition. The people are cut down. They're, they're cast out. They're exiled from, um, from Jerusalem. And uh, some of them over the years wander back in, but it's not the same. They don't have power anymore. They don't have the control that they once had. They're under, you know, the, the oppression of the Roman Empire. It's, it's almost an image of, of Exodus, of being in Egypt, where they had left in their history. And so the question was, well, we got to fix this, right? We got we to we do better. As, as a nation, as individuals, something's off and we need to get serious about how to fix it. But we can't do it on our own. We need God to make us holy. So we need a king. We need a leader. We need a Messiah to usher us into that new kingdom, And so in the first century, when Jesus was doing his ministry, there was a growing population of people that said, this is the guy. This is the one that we've been waiting for. But the constant tension was that his idea of holiness did not fit the mold of the religious leaders. Because our our idea through scripture is a growing consciousness. Jesus, when he talks about holiness, does not align with some of the rules and regulations that you're supposed to follow. So surely he can't be the one. And in order to end the rebellion, they, they figured out a way to use the Roman government to crucify him. And, and there's, this, there's a scene in the gospel uh, upon Jesus's death that it says that when you looked into the tabernacle, the, the temple, the, the place where God's holy presence resides, it says upon his death, the, the curtain was torn, the veil was torn. Now this last week I, I was on vacation with my family. We went to the zoo, and they have like an aquarium. And as I'm as we're in this aquarium, there's this like there's this tunnel that you can go through, and above you are like like sharks swimming. Like it's it's amazing. It's incredible. And like there's. There's so much to look at, and, and it's so cool. But I had this moment where I was like, if this glass breaks, we're all dead. Like, no, we cannot survive this. Like, this is, this is protecting us. This is keeping us safe. That's the same image of, of the curtain, of the veil in the tabernacle. That's the thing keeping us safe. If it breaks, we're all done for. But all of a sudden, that doesn't happen. Apparently, the death of Jesus changes something. And in fact, as we move forward, um, we get more clarity from, from the early Christian letters that that we know God's holiness needs to dwell somewhere. But, but Peter and Paul actually tell us, yeah, because of Jesus making us holy, that dwelling is you. You are the bricks of the tabernacle. Holiness needs to go somewhere. Of course it does. But, but instead of a, a a temple, a building, a structure. Now God's holiness is mobile. It has, it has hands and feet. And that's, that's our calling. And so in order to understand this more fully, we need to talk about milk. So here's two things you need to know about milk. Uh, number one is very important, milk is for babies. So here's a passage we need to read uh, in I think 1 Peter, yeah, 1 Peter chapter two says this, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment, now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. It's this idea that milk is good, you should crave it, cry out for it. They use the image of of a baby, how a baby cries out for nourishment, for milk, for sustenance. That's the same image of us as people, the new temple that, that uh, where, where God's holiness dwells, we must crave spiritual milk. But here's the other thing we need to know about milk. Number, number one, milk is for babies. Number two is this, so important. Milk is for babies. All right, now here's, here's, the, here's the contrast we find um, in some of the letters to the early church. In Hebrews, it says, you are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. For the church, the, the point is clear. Holiness is supposed to grow within us. It's not stagnant. It's not it's not just it just doesn't hover there. It's it's it grows. It's developed over time. And that that calls us to do something about it. There's 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 a calling place on our lives in order to to see that through. And that's where we want to talk about mechanics and this is where we'll end this morning. Uh, how many of you in the last year have had to take your car in to be serviced at, at some place yeah it's is that not the worst like the worst because you already have your car which is now like breaking down so it's not even a good car and you have to spend a lot of money to keep your your bad car. Like, that, I, it's the way, it feels like the worst use of money, but you also have to do it because you need to get from, from point A to point B. And for so much of my life, I felt like it's, the struggle is when I go to a mechanic, an auto mechanic, I don't know a thing about cars. They could tell me anything that they wanted, and I would believe it, but you could literally replace a car mechanic with a Verizon salesman saying the same things, and I would have no idea what's the difference. Like, yeah, you, yeah, you really need to upgrade your iOS here. Your storage is full. There's a crack in your screen, like, you got to go to the Ford store for this one. Like, I wouldn't know any of that. I would just, I would just, because I just don't know. Now, the, now the problem is, when you go to a mechanic, it's because your, your car has a problem. It's broken down on the side of the road, and it needs some help to get back on the road. And so, uh, the question is, like, well, what can we trust? When we break down, when we have our breakdowns, if we are the car, Do we go to a mechanic? Are we skeptical? Do we feel like we're getting ripped off? Or have you ever heard someone say this? No, 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 go to my guy. I got a guy and he will take care of you or she. They'll take care of you. They won't exploit you. They won't take advantage of you. They just care about your car. They love what they do. And that's the Christian witness from the first century to now. Hey, when you break down in life, I got a guy, I got a guy and he's gonna take care of you. And so, as we, as we think about that idea, here's, here's my final question. This is where we end. If you feel broken down, what's the reason? What's the reason you might, you might, if you're a car, what's the reason you might be broken down on the side of the road? Now, if you're a car, here are, here are like, here's my list of all the parts that, that make you up as a person. Dif- lots of different things here. Maybe your diagnosis is different from the person or people sitting around you. And that's okay, because we all have our own things we have to work on. But if you're broken, if you feel broken down today, you feel like you're on the side of the road, and maybe you gotta go to the mechanic and say that just get me, like, whatever's the cheapest, easiest, quickest option to get me running, like, do that. I don't want you to tell me, like, the 80 things I have wrong with this car. Well, that's okay, because that's the process of holiness. It's a journey, it's a lifelong journey that we follow to become more like Jesus so this morning don 't i mean man I, I look at the, all of them all of them i 'm struggling with okay what 's the one what 's the reason the real reason that you may feel broken down? another way of asking that question is when you look at this list this this list of things that make us up as humans what 's the one that you that you feel right now is the most unholy area of your life you don 't have to you don 't have to if, if one of them looks you see it on the screen you 're like well, how can that how can that one be on hold? Then that's not yours. That's a good indicator. That's not the one you need. But it might be someone else's. So what, as, as we journey toward holiness, how, how can we allow Jesus to be this mechanic to work on us, to grow from milk to solid food? How can we, when we're cut down, allow ourselves to be nurtured and grow that holy seed? How can, we, how can we have a, a respect for who God is and approach him in a way that he is making us holy? There are so many layers to this word, to this term. But as we look through scripture, as we expand and growing our knowledge and understanding of what this is, it allows us to receive the full potential of God's blessing. It's all about blessing. Holiness translates into blessing.